This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'm here to bring you another installment in the New Books Network seminar. These are books that we think will have a broad appeal across all our channels. Today, the book is by Matt Cook, and it's called Slight of Mind. This is really quite an incredible book because it's about paradoxes. That is things that reason tells you should be true, but can't be true, or things that must be true, but reason tells you they can't be true. I'm already in knots just talking about it. In any event, the author of this book is a magician. Yes, that's right, a magician who knows a lot about math and science and the social sciences and has ferreted out all kinds of paradoxes and offers ways in which these paradoxes can be resolved. Anyway, this is a fascinating interview, and I think a lot of you will enjoy it, particularly while you are sequestered at home during the COVID-19 shutdown. So without further ado, here it is. Hi, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books and Mathematics. Our guest today is Matt Cook, the author of Sleight of Mind. Matt is also a magician, which ties into today's theme of paradoxes. One of the most appealing aspects of both math and science are counterintuitive ideas, ideas that seem to defy logic. This delightful book presents and analyzes some of the best known of these ideas and also exposes the reader to many that are not as familiar but are equally enchanting. These tantalizing ideas do more than tease and perplex. They are often the gateway to better understanding. And isn't that what we want from math and science? Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jim. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Matt, I hear you used to perform as a professional magician and that you were trained at the Hollywood Magic Castle. Does that have anything to do with your motivation to write this book? Yes, as a matter of fact, it does. Uh, Paradox is really a sophisticated kind of magic trick. Uh, A magician's purpose on stage is to create the appearance of contradiction, to pull a rabbit from an empty hat, uh, to violate the physical rules or or whatever it is. Uh, Paradox is something similar, yet it doesn't require concretes like rabbits and hats. It works in the abstract uh, with words and symbols and concepts, and it sort of makes magic in the mind. Most people can typically explain magic tricks in general terms. They may not know the exact secrets, but they're familiar with the ideas of misdirection, gimmicks, uh, sleight of hand, and things like that. Paradox, on the other hand, achieves the same effect, uh, but it does so without anything tangible. And I like to call it sleight of mind, uh, hence the title of the book and uh, the motivation behind the book as well. Yeah, I thought it was a very nice title for the book. It's what uh, it's what initially appealed to me. Um, What is the principle of non-contradiction and who discovered it? Sure. The principle of non-contradiction, often abbreviated PNC, is the axiom that two or more mutually exclusive propositions cannot be simultaneously true. Uh, Now, that sounds redundant because that's what mutually exclusive means. But it's actually a significant statement about reality. It has to be true, and it has to apply to everything that is. Um, And you asked who discovered it. Well, PNC, um, principle of non-contradiction, was uh, famously identified by Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle... What is he's one of my favorite people from history, by the way. He was a brilliant and prolific thinker. 
And his fields of study, it's amazing how many fields he, he wrote about. Uh, he wrote about philosophy, physics, geology, uh, psychology, even biology, medicine, uh, art, language, many, many more. It Basically, if it was a thing at the time, he wrote about it. Uh, and his teachings have had a big influence on civilization uh, and rational thought. Among his achievements was the conception of formal logic. So his ancient Greek predecessors passed down uh, certainly a very rich intellectual heritage. Um, but I think logic was, was maybe the greatest achievement in the championship of reason itself. And Aristotle is often called the father of logic uh, and a father of Western philosophy. Yeah, well, how do you go about proving what he said, that reality is non-contradictory? <laughs> that is a great question, Jim. And it's, the answer is actually kind of unusual because the principle of non-contradiction has an unusual status. We can identify this principle, uh, and it's the firmest one of all. It's one that has to be true, uh, but we can't prove it. Just as we know that existence exists, we also know that existence, that reality, is non-contradictory. Now, how do we know reality is non-contradictory? Well, that's really a deep and interesting question. And ultimately, we simply have to recognize that reality requires itself to be non-contradictory. PNC, the principle of non-contradiction, isn't something that can be demonstrated or proved in the way that we prove other things. It's really more fundamental than any of those other things. It's so fundamental that it allows other things to be proved. Proofs rely on it. Proofs, well, proofs rely on logic, and logic itself relies on PNC. PNC is axiomatic to logic itself. And, and furthermore, if it weren't for the principle of non-contradiction, you could actually prove anything, however ridiculous, That's to be true. Logic. That's correct. Your book is actually about paradoxes. What is the difference between paradox and contradiction? Paradox is used in ways that have different meanings. And sometimes uh, there are meanings that can confuse those two concepts. So I like to, uh, I subscribe to a definition that I think clearly differentiates them. To me, paradox is the illusion of contradiction. There are no contradictions in reality, but sometimes there can appear to be. And that appearance is what makes paradox. Um, okay, you discuss uh, Quine, who was a logician, I think, of the first half of the 20th century. What were his three different types of paradoxes? Yes, you're right. So um, the philosopher Willard Van Orman Quine realized that paradoxes generally fit into three categories. Uh, and, and the first category that he pointed out is called um, the veridical paradox. And the Latin etymology of that word sort of explains its meaning. Veridical comes from the words that mean to speak the truth. So this kind of paradox, uh, these are statements that actually are true, but they don't seem like they could be. They're counterintuitive or they're hard to believe for some reason. Uh, the second category, uh, which he calls falsitical paradoxes, those are statements that are actually false uh, because they're derived using faulty logic. But that doesn't, um, but the logic doesn't appear to be faulty. The logic sounds uh, sounds valid. So the trick is is figuring out where the where the argument went wrong. And then the third category, called antinomical paradoxes, these are statements that produce self contradiction using methods of reasoning that sound uh, that are considered standard or acceptable. Uh, and, and these are the most troublesome of all, uh, I think. The most famous paradox of all is one of these. It's antinomical, also called an antinomy. And we can get into that in a little bit. Uh, fair so enough. Those three. Uh, the book can be read for the flavor of the paradoxes, but there's a lot of math in it. How much math do you think a reader should be familiar with in order to fully appreciate how the apparent paradoxes are resolved? Well, my intent was for readers of all background to be able to find value in sleight of mind. And the book is divided into chapters that focus on different areas. Uh, the cover says math 
physics, and philosophy. But there are also uh, some other interesting areas, like the social sciences, that aren't too heavy on the math. Um, the chapters all start by introducing the concepts that are going to be needed later. And there's also a notation guide at the back. Uh, so some readers may enjoy just getting a flavor, uh, and they don't need to go terribly deep into the notation. Others can go for the deep dive. It is a challenging book, and uh, the chapters, I'd say they generally start a little easier and they get harder as, as uh, you go along. But the short answer is it's designed with the intention that anyone can get something good from it and have a good time doing it. Well, uh, I noticed that uh, you started the book with the most ingenious paradox used in Gilbert and Sullivan's operetta, Pirates of Penzance, which I absolutely love. I love Gilbert and Sullivan. What is that paradox <laughs> and why is it relevant to your book? Well, thanks for asking that question. I'm, I'm a big Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, Sullivan fan as well. The most ingenious paradox comes from uh, the Pirates of Penzance, an operetta by Gilbert and Sullivan. It's, it, this one's fun. It's simple. It's probably the easiest paradox in the book to understand, but it's also deeper than it seems at first. And I really like it because it's helpful in showing what a good explanation looks like. Uh, so I can kind of describe what the paradox is briefly and then um, what the full explanation of it is. So in, in the Pirates of Penzance, there's a young man named Frederick, the main character, uh, who's lived for 21 years, but he's only had five birthdays. Now, how can that be? In the operetta, uh, Frederick is to be released from his indentures to a band of pirates upon his 21st year. Uh, but it turns out that he was born on Leap Day, February 29th. So the appearance of contradiction arises from the assumption that the, the same calendar date is reached every 365 days. And most people equate number of years lived with the number of calendar birthdays, uh, which is true most of the time. But it's also um, a false assumption because there are these leap years. So that's a very quick explanation. You know, it's a simple, simple paradox, but here's where you can go deeper if you want to. You could close the case there, or you could ask, why do we have leap years? And we act, this is still, you know, not too tough. We, we learned this in elementary school, the time it takes the earth to revolve once around the sun is not an even multiple of the time it takes the earth, uh, to rotate fully about its axis. Um, you know, it's, it takes approximately 365 and a quarter days for the Earth to complete a revolution. And without the leap year correction of February 29th, eventually the seasons would be thrown off kilter. So in 728 years, spring would become fall, summer would become winter. And why would that matter? Well, there are, there are benefits to synchronizing the calendar with expected temperatures and other seasonal changes. And among them has been uh, mankind's ability to avoid starvation by optimally timing crop cycles. The, um, the leap year was actually introduced over two millennia ago in 46 BC by Julius Caesar with the Council of an Astronomer. Uh, but it was known the need for the leap year had been discovered even before that by the Egyptians. So Frederick's plight in Gilbert and Sullivan is actually connected to agriculture and, uh, and other aspects of civilization that have historically benefit, have benefited from uh, this sort of seasonal synchronization. And so just to kind of wrap this all, the full resolution to the paradox calls for an understanding of calendar design and looking into the origin of the, the concepts of a day, a season, and a year. And only by looking deeply into those uh, concepts and the relationships between them and their value to human life can we see the full story behind why that initial assumption that the, that the same calendar date is necessarily reached every 365 days is false. So that's the kind of resolution and analysis that you can expect in this book. Untangling the contradiction is half the story and understanding the nature of the resolution asking, how did we just do that? How did we just resolve that? 
That's the other half. One of the things that first appealed to me about mathematics was something I found in a book I read when I was young, 321 Infinity by George Gamow. He discussed a lot of the paradoxes associated with the concept of infinity. And you absolutely tee off your book by discussing paradoxes of infinity. What are some of the big ideas here? Great question, Jim. Well, infinity is really an interesting concept. Um, it's not something that we can see or touch. We can't perceive it with our eyes and ears, but we can still conceive of it. But being so distant from the world of things that we can see, it's a tough concept to grasp. We can much more easily imagine large but finite quantities like the number of grains of sand on the earth or um, plankton in the oceans or the number of stars in the Milky Way. Uh, so infinity goes beyond our everyday understanding of numbers and arithmetic. Um, and it was, it was really, well, the German mathematician Georg Cantor spent a lot of time, uh, thinking about infinity and he proved something in itself, uh, rather paradoxical that infinities come in different sizes. And in fact, they come in an infinity of sizes. So bizarre as it may seem, some infinities are actually larger than others. And for any infinity, there's always a larger one. Uh, so in Sleight of Mind, the chapter on infinity proves that fact and also includes a lot of very interesting related, uh, related paradoxes. Well, I've always liked the Hilbert Hotel paradox. That was the one that first appealed to me. That's a fun one. Uh, should we go yeah, into it? Because that's an easy one for people to understand, I think, even if they're sure. just listening to it. Okay, great. Well, it goes like this. So imagine that there's a, a hotel that you have. It's a very, very big hotel, um, bigger than anyone you've seen, because uh, it actually has an infinity of rooms. Uh, and the rooms are labeled uh, the numbers that you count. So they're, they're labeled one, room two, room three, room four, and so on. Uh, and for any, any number, room number that you could name, uh, there's always a higher, uh, higher room number. So um, a guest comes along. Let's say that you you come along and you'd like to stay at the hotel, uh, but there's a sign out front that says no vacancy. Yeah, in fact, every every room is currently occupied. Is there a way that you could still get a room at this hotel? Uh, it turns out that there is. So. What if every single guest uh, were to move to the room one number greater than his or her current room number? So that means that the person in room one goes to room two, the person in room two goes to room three, person in room three goes to room four, and so on. So uh, another way of saying it is that the person in room X goes to room X plus one. Uh, what does that do? Well, that actually leaves... After, after this movement, this shift, that leaves room one unoccupied because no one moved into room one. Uh, every other room, someone moved out of it and into it. But room one, uh, no one moved into it. They only moved out of it. So now, after this shift, you can actually go and stay in room one, which seems kind of paradoxical because it was actually a fully occupied uh, hotel with no vacancy, and yet... By moving things around, uh, one room was able to be freed up so that you could stay there. Delicious. Um, <laughs> chapter two deals with Zeno's paradoxes of motion. What are those? Well, before I get to that, let's maybe just start with a brief history. Uh, there was a man named Parmenides of Ilia, and he's often credited as the father of several important branches of philosophy. And he was a pre-Socratic Greek philosopher. Uh, and the founder of the Iliadic school of philosophy. And so his, his school disputed the validity of the senses or, this, or sensory experience as a means of acquiring knowledge and uh, getting to the truth. He instead called for purely logical uh, standards. His poem, he wrote a poem called On Nature, uh, in which he made a case for two opposing views of reality, one, uh, one being according to popular belief and the other being according to logic. 
And the senses, he said, lead to popular opinions about the world that are false. And logic tells us about a very different world that is that is uh, uniform, undifferentiated, uh, timeless, and uh, static, really. Now, among, uh, going back to your question, among Parmenides' students uh, at his school was a guy named Zeno, uh, Zeno Evilia, who lived around 500 BC. And he very much defended the philosophy of his teacher, and he did so by devising a series of uh, paradoxes of motion, uh, which he felt proved motion to be impossible, despite our sensory uh, evidence to the contrary. He, uh, Zeno may have actually been the first to use the argument of reductio ad absurdum, uh, meaning a proof by contradiction. And uh, he, was, he was credited by Aristotle as the inventor of the dialectic, um, or the method of using reasoning and, and reason discourse to resolve uh, disagreements in the pursuit of truth. So Zeno devised these, these interesting paradoxes that actually um, people, thinkers have been talking about for a very long time, even though they're so old. Um, and he himself couldn't resolve these paradoxes of motion. He used them as a way of defending his mentor's idea that the world is actually static. Uh, so he came to the wrong conclusion. He, he, he couldn't quite resolve them, but um, I think that conceiving of them is actually um, quite an achievement itself. Uh, so motion is a concept that we form very early in life. We see it all around us all the time. Our lives require motion. They imply motion. Uh, motion even applies to things we can't see like particles, radiation, uh, even space-time itself. So what, what Zeno's paradoxes show is that sometimes we need a more nuanced understanding of even these very uh, apparently simple concepts like motion. Can you give a couple of examples of some of the paradoxes of motion? Sure. Um, well, how about the most famous... Uh, I would say the most famous one is is called the dichotomy. And here's the here's the scenario that Zeno uh, described. He said, imagine a runner uh, on a racetrack, and there's a start there's a start line and a finish line. Well, in order for the runner to make it to the finish line, he must at some point cross the halfway point. He must reach the halfway point before he can get to the finish line. Um, but in order for him to reach the halfway point, he must, along the track, at some point, reach the quarter distance point. And in order to get to the quarter, the quarter mark, he has to reach the eighth mark. And in order to get to the eighth mark, he has to reach the 16th mark, and so on. So, um, actually, the runner needs to reach an infinite number of points in order to accomplish his task of reaching the finish line. So he must do, before he can do the one thing he set out to do, he has to do an infinity uh, of, of other things. And Zeno argued that, well, it's really not possible to, to complete an infinite number of tasks uh, like that in finite time. So therefore, his original goal of reaching the finish line is impossible. He can't actually get there. Well, if you can't get some fixed distance, then you can't then you can't get to any fixed distance. He says so. Therefore, any motion of any kind is actually impossible, which is a false conclusion. Uh, there is a resolution uh, to this, and, and what I find quite interesting about the resolution is is how long it's taken for um, for some very very uh, bright thinkers along the way to get there. I think the form of that particular paradox that I'm familiar with and maybe most listeners are familiar with is the one about the arrow not reaching its target because it has to go halfway first, then another half of the half, and then another half of the half, etc. And I always realized, or at least I, when I learned about this, I realized that one way to resolve this was the idea of the summing of, an, of a geometric series. And I don't know when geometric series arose in mathematics. Do you? 
when it arose in mathematics, oh, I couldn't give you a particular date. I but, think they knew about it in the 17th about, century. Could tell you about Cauchy. The uh, I may I may be mispronouncing the name, but the mathematician who who is actually the guy who put a lot of rigor into the study of uh, converging series and uh, and things like that. And that is certainly talked about a lot in the book. But there's also more more to the resolution. It's uh, of the of Zeno's dichotomy. It's not really just about uh, adding one half plus a quarter plus an eighth and so on to uh, to get a finite amount. It really is about understanding uh, what what motion is and that it is a mapping uh, between location and time. Yeah, it is a, a function that maps uh, time to a specific location uh, in, in space. And that conception is important in, in resolving the paradox and also generating a lot of other concepts like velocity uh, that really fall from it. You know, you wrote about an awful lot of paradoxes in the book. I think you listed, I think you counted them and had 75. Can you tell us a few of your favorites and then I'll maybe bring in a few of my favorites? Sure. Well, it's, oh, it's tough to pick a favorite. Uh, you don't have to pick just I, one. Okay, I'll name a few then. Uh, so one, one that I love is a proof that all horses are the same color. Uh, now, obviously, there's something wrong about that proof because that statement is false. Not all horses are actually the same color. But what's wonderful about it is that it's not immediately obvious where the proof goes wrong. I've, I've even shared that with uh, several of my mathematician friends, and almost every time the same thing happens. They see the proof, and then their eyes widen with this sort of panic because it's very disconcerting. The proof really looks solid. It really does. And yet it's arguing something that's clearly not the case. Uh, so that's, that's I'd probably put on my top three. Uh, oh, well, second, you can't do it. You can't leave us hanging like that. Oh, you got to give it. You know, this one, I think it's better to read because okay. it, takes, it takes a bit of preparation. Okay, uh, fair enough. And I'm not saying it's too difficult, but it, it sometimes... If you're not familiar, for example, with mathematical induction, you need to know what that is and and read a, a quick primer on it. It doesn't take too much time reading the book, but I think it would be outside the scope of the interview. Okay, fair uh, enough. But, I, make the but sure, I could mention I could mention two others. Please uh, do. There are many beautiful paradoxes in probability, and one of my favorites is the Sleeping Beauty paradox. Uh, it really gets to the heart of what probability is. So uh, if people are taking a peek in the book, I'd suggest that one. Uh, and then finally, I'd have to say a very classic uh, paradox, um, maybe the most famous of all, which is the liar's paradox. Uh, the statement that this statement is false. And there are many others in its family. There are other varieties of it. Uh, it has many relatives. And and these are really tough ones. It They seem they sound easy at first, uh, perhaps like the solution is just around the corner, um, but the solution is always just around the corner. It's, it's elusive, and um, there's still, believe it or not, not a consensus on the best or, or single proper resolution to that. Okay, I'm going to ask you to discuss a few of my favorite ones. One of the ones that I always liked was the unexpected hanging paradox. Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. Uh, th this is a great one. Uh, I think that it will be best to spend more time on the problem itself. The resolution is tough. So this is, this is one of those things where understanding the problem is, is a lot easier than understanding the solution. Uh, so here's, here's the problem as it's set up. Let's say that you have a prisoner, and, and there, there are various forms of this. Sometimes it's students uh, preparing for an exam, but we'll, we'll, use, uh, we'll use the prisoner context. So there's a prisoner 
and uh, he's locked in a prison cell. And the warden comes into uh, to visit on a Sunday and says to the prisoner, you are going to be executed this coming week, meaning someday Monday through Friday. And on the day that your execution is to occur, your hanging is to occur, you will be surprised by the fact of, of that hanging. So the prisoner then thinks to himself, well, this can't be true because suppose that Monday through Thursday have already passed. Suppose that it's now Friday. The warden promised that the hanging was to take place that week. So that leaves only Friday. It must, it, the, the execution must take place on Friday. But the warden also promised that it would be a surprise. So certainly it, it can't be Friday because if by Friday morning, or, or the end of Thursday, I should say, if by the end of Thursday the execution has not taken place, that leaves only one day, and he can't be surprised that day because the prisoner can deduce that that's the day it's going to happen. All right, so that so scratch off Friday can't can't take place on Friday. Well, now suppose that by the end of Wednesday the execution has not taken place. That leaves now only Thursday because we've already ruled out Friday, right? So that leaves only Thursday. But then if by the end of Wednesday that execution hasn't taken place, the prisoner can then use the same logic. Well, I wouldn't be surprised on Thursday. So it can't, it can't take place on Thursday either. Well, you keep working your way back this way, and the prisoner reasons that not only can the execution not play, take place on Friday or Thursday, it, it can't take place on Wednesday, Tuesday, or Monday either. So the prisoner kind of shrugs it off and says, well, I know, Mr. Warden, that you cannot deliver on this promise. And the warden says, we'll see. So he walks out. And then the warden does indeed surprise him by coming in on a day like Tuesday or Wednesday. And uh, the execution takes place and the prisoner was, in fact, surprised after all. So that's a paradox because it, it looks like the prisoner has perfectly valid reasoning for why the warden cannot deliver on his promise. Uh, and yet, nonetheless, it seems like the the warden does deliver on his promise after all. That is a uh, very, very difficult one to unravel. And in fact, it was probably in the top three most difficult for me personally when writing the book. You know, I have to say that that's one of the things that we would hope that an interview does. We have a teaser that makes the people who are listening really prompted to buy the book because how can you not listen to that and not want to know how to resolve it? <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. Maybe that's what makes us geeky. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> and pretty much people who are geeky are listening, uh, are listening, and that's the type of people who to whom problems like this appeal. And Terrific. I'd like to go into uh, a couple of the ones that show up in areas other than mathematics or logic, because I think they're, uh, you know, they've been very important in the history and evolution of physics. And one of them is the Maxwell's demon paradox. Sure. Uh, well, I'd, I'd also like to take uh, a minute here to uh, to credit the, the guys I feel very lucky, lucky to have been able to work with on this book. Uh, so my my wheelhouse in in writing this tended to be all of the ones that had to do with um, mathematics, philosophy, and the social sciences. Uh, but I, I really wanted every explanation of every paradox to be the best that it possibly could be. And uh, so for the physics section, and there are three chapters on physics: classical physics. Um, uh, relativity, uh, uh, special relativity, and also quantum mechanics, I brought in uh, three friends who are all uh, PhDs from Caltech, having studied physics and, and are doing remarkable things in the field, uh, to, to work on those chapters with me. So um, the one that 
that you just mentioned, Maxwell's demon, is in the classical physics chapter. And uh, again, we can just sort of tease, uh, tease at this. But this, this um, paradox uh, imagines a two chambers. It imagines two chambers, all right, that are connected by a little hole. And inside those chambers, there are, of course, particles of air that are zooming around, little, little molecules that are just bumping into each other and zooming around. And uh, they, each, each particle has you know, its own speed or a different amount of energy. Now imagine if there were a little tiny, uh, a little tiny demon, uh, Maxwell calls him, or just some, some creature there, some minuscule creature that could perceive the amount of energy that these particles contain. And this little demon, this little creature, has a sliding door. And he can open and close the door between the two chambers to selectively allow uh, the faster particles to only be in one of the chambers and the slower moving particles in the other. So he would then create, uh, in time, by selectively opening this little door, uh, a disparity, right? So that there would be the hot particles in one chamber and the cold particles in the other. And then in theory, you could actually derive work from that difference, right? So this violates one of the, uh, you know, fundamental laws of, of thermodynamics. Uh, entropy must be, must be always increasing. And, and yet it's not immediately apparent uh, why, you know, why this is impossible. It, it seems like theoretically it could be possible for, for this situation to be created. So there's the teaser. <laughs> and when we get on to special relativity, special relativity contains easily some of the most paradoxical ideas I think that we've ever encountered. Moving objects are shorter and heavier. Moving clocks run more slowly. And any paradox involving time is always fascinating. And one of the most difficult consequences a special relativity is the twins paradox. So I think that, uh, again, a little, a little background here. So Einstein was, well, first of all, just a little history of, of relativity. Many areas of physics have been, you know, worked on by a great number of physicists over time. One of the remarkable things about relativity, both special and general, is that they were pretty single-handedly introduced and developed by one man, and that's Albert Einstein. Uh, quantum physics, by contrast, is, is something that, that had many, many developments, many breakthrough developments building from each other, but nonetheless, it was a lot of people working on them. Uh, and, and this was, by contrast, relativity is pretty much single-handed. So Einstein was actually observing uh, uh, trains when when he realized that motion itself is, is a relative concept. So when you're sitting in a train and you see another train going by, you feel as if you are stationary and that other train is moving by you. But that's the very same way that the people on the other train are feeling. So they're sitting in their chairs and they're looking at you moving by, but they feel like they are stationary. So who's actually correct? Who, who's really stationary and who's moving? Or how about the people on the platform that are seeing both trains go by? Those people on the platform say, hey, guys, you're both moving, but I'm standing still. So the answer is that actually motion is relative. You can't really say who is stationary and who's moving. Motion is relative to something else. So we all have our own reference frame. Uh, now. If you take that observation and you combine it with another observation, which was, uh, which was known to be a truth that had been validated experimentally, and that is that light always moves at its own speed, basically moves at the speed of light, uh, and, that, and that comes from the Michelson-Morley experiment. You combine these two things together, and then you get some very, very counterintuitive 
uh, results, which are, for example, the idea that if someone is moving very rapidly relative to you, time is actually moving slower for them relative to you. And so the twin paradox that you mentioned, just to kind of connect it back to your original question, is uh, uh, an interesting uh, apparent contradiction. Again, there's no real contradiction. Apparent contradiction that arises from uh, from asking, well, what had uh, a pair of twins uh, who are the same age, but then one of them goes speeding off uh, and then comes speeding back? Shouldn't it be that each one should think that time has been moving more slowly for the other twin? Uh, well, it turns out that you have to factor in uh, you have to factor in acceleration. Acceleration changes the game a little bit. But that'll be that'll be what I leave listeners with here is that that teaser. Fair enough. You know, one of the things in your book is that I would come across, you know, I've been interested in this all my life. So I've seen a lot of these. But there was one chapter that fascinated me because I'd never seen anything about it. And that was the chapter on super tasks. Can you talk about super tasks and maybe one a paradox associated with them? Sure. Um you know, sometimes it was it was challenging to decide where which chapter a particular paradox would um, fit into the most, because some of them would hit on a number of the uh, categories that, that I devised. Um, but ultimately, I, I I think that it did make sense where they all ended up. Anyway, that's to say that the Zeno the Zeno paradox. Uh, that I described before, you know, might have also been able to fit into the super task chapter. So there's something that's going to sound familiar about it here. Anyway, a super task is a task that has a no, an infinite number of component steps that are to be completed in finite time. And so let's look at one very interesting uh, example of this. Okay, let's say that you have a lamp, and this is called Thompson's lamp, by the way. All right. So let's say that you have a lamp with an on-off switch, and what you set out to do in the span of a minute, you set a timer for a minute, and every time you get halfway closer to the minute mark, you change the state of the lamp by by uh, pushing the on-off switch. So let's say it starts off on. Then after 30 seconds, you push the switch and now it's off. Then at the 45 second mark, you push the switch again, back to on. And then uh, you've got 15 seconds left. So that would be seven and a half seconds later, you switch it again and so on. And as you get closer to that minute mark, there's a flurry of activity. You're you're pushing that button very, very rapidly. You're busy. All right. Yeah. So you're very busy. And we're going to ignore, we're going to just think of this in theoretical terms, and we're going to ignore the impossibility of that, because there would come a point when you'd be, you'd be having to <laughs> perform these actions uh, within a plank time, if, if listeners are familiar with that, yeah, I, and your hands, your hands would be moving so rapidly in order to, to merely push the switch that you'd have to be uh, moving impossibly fast, your, your fingers would have to go faster than the speed of light. So there are holes that would that would make this practically impossible. Uh, but that's not what we're what we're looking at here. We're we're really just considering this mathematically. So the question is: When the timer reaches one minute, is the lamp on or off? And does that depend on the initial state of the lamp? So this one, you know, I could could answer it. I think in in less than a minute, but well, Thompson's lamp think, is on. So go ahead. <laughs> but I do, I do think that it's, it's actually quite fun to think about. And, and, um, I, I would rather encourage listeners to think about it on their own. The question, let me, let me give them some leading questions though. Sure. I would say the question to ask is not, is the lamp on or off, but rather how much are we equipped to know based on the setup of the problem? 
So there are things that it may seem like we should be able to know or deduce, but does it just seem that way? Or should we really be able to know them and deduce them? And how much can we know here? So I think that's what I'd rather leave the listener with. And it goes into great detail in the book. Yeah, as a mathematician, I can see a bunch of different ways to go at this problem. But yes, I will, uh, I will let you leave the listeners with the mysteries. Um, let, me ask you, uh, let me ask you another question, because you looked at, uh, um, you're looking at mathematics and paradoxes. And do you believe that mathematics in general and the paradoxes you've looked at in your book are invented or discovered? It's a question that philosophers ask, among others. Yes. Well, thank you for asking this question. And I'm also going to take a moment to credit uh, the fourth contributor to the book. Uh, the, the final chapter in the book is indeed on this very question, which, is, uh, which addresses, is mathematics invented or discovered? And like you pointed out, this is something that uh, philosophers and mathematicians have spent a lot of time thinking about. Uh, so I invited a friend, Grant Sanderson. Uh, Grant is a, is a uh, terrific mathematician and probably one of the best educators in mathematics and science that I know. Uh, he, has, he has an incredible YouTube channel. It's called Three Blue, One Brown. Uh, last I checked, he had, I think, over uh, 50 million views, but it's probably, it's been a while since I checked, so it's probably uh, much higher now. He has a just a great, elegant way of um, animating uh, his visuals, and uh, you know, I really would suggest that anyone listening to this, if, if you haven't already, please do check out Grant Sanderson's videos on YouTube. Uh, from the three blue, one brown channel. Wonderful stuff. Anyway, I invited Grant to um, share his thoughts on this. I shared mine as well. Uh, and, and so Grant has an essay. He also wrote a poem on this very subject uh, that I think are, are really great. My own view is, just to kind of keep, keep things uh, as short and sweet as possible, is that it's both, really. Um, it the axioms of mathematics are based more on discovery, I would say, because they, they correlate very closely to certain very fundamental things about the world we live in that can't be proven but can nonetheless be known, things such as the principle of non-contradiction. Uh, there are other axioms like that that uh, many systems of mathematics use. And I would say that those those are really discovered uh, discovered things, but but then what we do with those axioms, um, uh, you know, we can then we can then discover more. Uh, but nonetheless, there's a lot of invention that goes into a system of of mathematics as well. So there's there's really discovery based on invention, based on discovery is is kind of how I I put it short. Okay, hey, well, as far as I'm concerned, um, when I think of YouTube, I watch old rock videos on YouTube. And what I'd appreciate <laughs> your doing is getting in touch with Grant Sanderson, tell him to write a book so I can interview him on it. Well, that would be great. I'm, I'm sure that he would love to do that. Uh, I, I highly recommend his videos, too. I think you'll really like them. They're, they're tough concepts on there that he makes accessible to just about anyone. And, and I think that this actually um, leads to something that I think is very important. I think that videos like his or books like this one, like Slide of Mind, are very good for building intellectual confidence. A lot of people get turned off to subjects like math and physics because they feel a mental block for whatever the reason. Uh, maybe an instructor that they found intimidating. It's, it's also easy to close off when you see strange symbols or you hear words that you don't know. It's easy to think, well, that looks like Egyptian, so I'll go no further. It's good to remember that there's a limited number of weird-sounding words and symbols. And if you take the time to look these things up and trace out all the concepts until you reach things that you do understand, eventually all the weird-sounding stuff doesn't sound so weird anymore. Uh, it'll start to sound familiar. You won't feel like you're on an alien planet. You'll, uh, you'll feel like you're on familiar ground. 
And I think it's important to be able to say, this all looks unfamiliar to me, but it's learnable and understandable if I put some work in. You have to remind yourself not to be intimidated by the strangeness of things that you don't know yet. I absolutely think that's true. And I think another highly important concept in education, especially in an area like math and science, is to make it entertaining. And that's what your book certainly did. Well, thank you. That was that was certainly the idea. Oh. Uh, one one thing that they actually told us, uh, I'm not sure you know how closely this relates here, but at the Magic Castle, um, one piece of instruction that I received that I think was was really great is that you're actually not a magician. You are an entertainer. And uh, that kind of shifted the way I, I thought about the whole the whole art form. But that is to say that people do uh, like to be entertained and it is it is a useful learning tool. And I think that by using uh, paradoxes, which are similar to magic, which people are entertaining, it's actually a great way to introduce a lot of concepts in mathematics in um, in ways that are immediately interesting and have an immediate application or a puzzle or a problem to solve. Yeah, that's what I've always tried to do as a teacher. I received the same uh, advice, but I received it for mathematics rather than magic. Makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, this has been a wonderful interview. I'd like to ask how listeners can get in touch with you. Uh, well, thank you, Jim. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate your having me. Listeners can reach me through my website, which is www.visitmat.com. That's two T's and Matt. So visitmatt.com. I love to hear from listeners and readers, and I welcome their outreach. Um, I do have some other projects, some fiction books, and some musical compositions, which are available on the site. Uh, and like I said, it would be great to hear from from listeners. So please do reach out. Um, if you, I'm not so sure about fiction, but if you ever write another book along the lines of this or anything in math or science, um, who are you going to call? That would be me. <laughs> Ghostbusters <laughs> and Jim Stein. Yeah, all right. Take care, Matt. <laughs> Thanks okay. so much, Jim. Right. Bye-bye. Bye.